I'm Richard Linklater, director of Boyhood, and you are listening to Adjust Your Tracking. In the industry, we call them cigarette burns. That's the cue for a changeover. He flips the projectors, movie keeps right on going, and nobody in the audience has any idea. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oven. I'm worried, Joe. I'm worried about this movie Midnight Special that we we praised we praised so so much last last episode. Yeah. Um. You know, it's it's getting its wider release. It's it's expanding kind of slowly to more theaters. Seems like the smart move, but um, I guess you know we were talking off mic. Like, is there enough? Is there enough juice for this movie to make make back its rather paltry budget for a studio right. like Warner Brothers? The science of like how stuff rolls out and the sort of interest like it needs to be steadily building for it to justify them opening up bigger and bigger as the weeks go on but like maybe the initial burst of interest in this movie like the the word of mouth isn't contagious enough because nobody listens to each other anymore and so uh like people are people see it and they're like it was it was great like this is exactly what's missing from movies and people are like what's it called and eh, never mind and they like tune out cuz they want to go see the water cooler movie of the week <laughs> which is whatever trash pile is sort of like currently like you know on rotten tomatoes at 24% which <laughs> whether that's <laughs> Melissa McCarthy's the boss or Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice BVS DOJ yeah and so like that's that's the one that people those are the big the big movies that are being discussed by and large by everybody. Cause you know, you and I know what it's like to feel lonely when you bring up a title that generates no sparkle in the eyes of the person you're talking to. And you just gradually watch them glaze over as you're trying to explain what it is to them. Yeah. With everyone's dying attention spans. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I think of a time where I got a haircut here in uh, Northeast Portland one time. Uh, and I asked someone if they had heard of, they asked me what I did for a living. And I started talking about movies and I brought up, it was when Django Unchained was about to come out. Yeah. And I shit you not. The, the barber had no idea what I was talking about. And I was like, oh, okay. Right. You haven't heard of that movie? I was like, you know, Quentin Tarantino, blank, blank, rolled over eyes. Like, so I was like, hold on. What? Like, am I that, <laughs> am I that out of tune with, you know, and you try not to base these soul interactions with people on like, you know, you don't want to speak too broadly or, or yeah. reductive of the public, but it's like, I thought everybody knew who Quentin Tarantino is. So with acknowledging that fact that no, of course people don't know. Not everybody does know that they, they don't care. It's not an important right. part of the life. Where, where does midnight special land in that realm then? And that, yeah, I think you, you put it perfectly. Like where, where does that leave a movie like this? And uh, I mean, for me, it's, it's like, if nothing else, this movie should be able to make the the, the box office that some, that Jeff Nichols' previous movie Mud made, which was like an indie yeah. success. It made like over twenty million dollars at the box office for 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 like a few years ago. That's that's the least that this movie uh, Midnight Special should be able to do with Warner Brothers behind it. But uh, it's just it, it seems like they're they don't have the time or the they. You know, recently, uh, just a couple days ago on the playlist, uh, there was a news story about how Warner Brothers is actually um, looking at the performance of BVS DOJ. They're like, we're going to make more of these movies and less 
of the other lower budget drama or basically they're going to make less midnight specials and more Batman versus Superman's. And it's so depressing. Like why they, they want to, they want to double triple down on this stuff that a lot of us don't seem to like in the culture. Yeah, and I, I, yeah. I think it's deadening and not to be a drama queen, but it's like, I think it's detrimental to just like to movies. I do, I do feel like there's something destructive about how insistently idiotic these movies have come to be, no matter how ponderous they like pose, you know, like no matter how much they're sort of kind of posturing to be like, you know, deep or brooding or introspective, like they're dumb movies. They're incredibly recklessly idiotic. And like, I just feel like the the more they're, there's like movies with no nuance, no no slow builds, no actual genuine character development. That's just that's detrimental, and it will because sp- people will get tired of it. As much as people are falling for the giant like spectacle and the sort of like the action that's all peak, you know, with like with with no build, mm-hmm. they're gonna get tired of it, or, and they're just gonna you know, graduate to just watching, you know, uh, Snapchat and that's it, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. It, it's... IMAX Snapchat. <laughs> well, we'll try not to get too depressed. I mean, at the sure. if, if nothing else, you know, we have to be thankful that a movie like Midnight Special got made. We got it. And, you know, Jeff Nichols already has his next film in the can. It's coming out in November, you know, a drama called Loving. And right. hopefully he gets the next big movie he gets. And and maybe there's enough of a lifespan at the box office for Midnight Special. It yeah. would, I think the thing that we're most worried about is that the, this kind of slow box office rollout from a studio just doesn't really happen anymore. So it leads it leads us to believe that, like, does is this really even in the interest of Warner Brothers? And, and right. that's worrisome. And it, it also... It's depressing because it it just seems like it it shouldn't be that hard for this movie to get to get attention enough attention on it to get some butts in the seats for it. For a future episode, we were we were talking about how uh, streaming platforms are now the ones that are bankrolling sort of the the visions of filmmakers that we think that we're like the most interested in these sort of like these very unique uh, filmmakers like Kerry Fukunaga with. Um, Beasts of No Nation and, you know, Netflix and Amazon are, are sometimes bankrolling movies and sometimes just buying them outright from festivals. And so, like, as much as that's encouraging in terms of, like, the sort of a broad spectrum of movies still being available for you to watch, like, you know, Midnight Special belongs in a movie theater. Because there's so much content out there, when people are sort of hesitant and wary of either watching a television show that's streaming or watching a movie. I'm usually kind of like hands off because I don't like to be, you know, a bully about what to watch. So people are like, nah, I don't really like that. Fine. You, you need to be discerning and you need to eliminate the amount of content you need to wade through because there's too much. I understand you're overloaded. You know, it's, it's really hard to sit and watch stuff, (laughs) but like with midnight special, I just straight up say like, you need to see this. It's very important. If you don't like it, it's a worthwhile conversation to have. But I need you to see it. And like people are like, Jesus, all right, I'll go see it. <laughs> so like everybody that's seen it on my like very firm insistence, not mean. I'm just like, it's for your own good that you see this movie. <laughs> I agree. They see it and they're like, oh my God, it was amazing. Like yes. I'm so glad. Like I'm so glad that that 
that thrill still exists, you know, because like that's that's what you and I love going into a darkened theater for is these like fully immersive, transformative experiences, which I think Midnight Special is a perfect example of and is becoming all too rare. And so like streaming platforms seem to be and VOD seem to be what the art house experience and independent film world was in the 1990s, which was like a heyday for independent films. It was the 90s. Oh, yeah. And our first film we're going to discuss is the new movie by Richard Linklater, Everybody Wants Some. Hey, hey, guys. Yeah. You guys want more beer? Go to Howard's. The guy that uh, looks like cheese. Huh. We're getting all this shit for free, okay? Dude, no cover in free beer. College is the fucking greatest. Hey, it's part of the scholarship. Richard Linklater was like one of... He was the one that sort of, I think, kicking down the door is the wrong term for a movie like Slacker. <laughs> yeah. That staggered. Sort of just talk, talks to you whether you listen or not, you know, kind of a... He wandered around your house mumbling <laughs> to himself with Slacker. But, like, he's one of the, he, he's one of the, the titles in the, the book about that whole era, Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes. He's the Slacker part. That's right. Um, and so like, he's, he's a huge figurehead of the 1990s and he like Quentin Tarantino, who you mentioned, like they have, even though your barber didn't know who Quentin Tarantino (laughs) was, they've got like, uh, a recognizability that allows them to coast, you know, like Mm -hmm. Quentin Tarantino has made like flat out hits, you know, that like had huge box office returns with like Inglorious Bastards it's stuff like that. Um, Richard Linklater less so. Like he's had his school, <laughs> school of rocks, but like I think he just he has like a recognizability. It gives him an opportunity, like everybody wants some, where Paramount, you know, gave him like the opportunity to make the movie he wants to make. Mm-hmm. And so like it's a spiritual is what it's being called, a follow up to Dazed and Confused from 1993. Oh yeah. One of your favorite films of all time, is that yeah. right? That's right, my friend, and one that you and I have introduced at a screening before, an outdoor screening. That was fun. <laughs> it was fun. Um but like it was it's interesting because despite his sort of like his reputation sort of, you know, like being enough for him to get certain opportunities and especially recently with boyhood getting as much academy recognition and critical recognition and like people to see it because of what a sort of like unique experience it was he like he kind of gets to do what he wants but he's got a movie now with everybody wants some that was like not inexpensive i'm sure it wasn't hugely expensive Mm -hmm. but it's like you know it's still the money's on the screen like i don't think it was like entirely cheap to make and it seems like they don't know how to market it Mm. like they don't and so like the difference between it and days confused coming out in 1993 which was his follow-up to slacker like the landscape is so drastically different and understandably so we're 23 years later you know, it's like, of course, everything's changed. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's it's sort of, it's it's strange to think about how, you know, like, in the 90s, when people were just, like, going to the, the art house cinema, and you work at one, you work at Cinema 21, even though these places still exist, the cultural conversation seems to have changed. And now we have Everybody Wants Some opening at, like, you know, 
more theaters than Days of Confused arguably did when it initially opened. When yeah. does a movie build kind of like what we're talking about with Midnight Special, which like you would hope a movie like that would be given the sort of like opportunity to gradually build, to find its audience. And now it just seems like it needs to sort of come out the gate, make its impact. And like, hopefully that's enough of a theatrical return to justify whatever's next. But if not, it makes enough of an impact to generate enough interest on VOD. And so it's just like, it's this weird under the gun pressure mm-hmm. that seems to be happening. Yeah, there's just this demand for almost any and all movies, like no matter what type type they are, size, release, uh, the amount of theaters they're shown in, there has to be this instant like, oh, it didn't grab it in that first weekend. Well, I guess it doomed. You know, yeah, it's doomed. And that there's not really space for it to happen because I guess it gets back to the you know that we're all inundated with so much content now. And let's actually get into like the movie itself and how we feel about it a little bit. But like, to me, it's a film that does a lot of what Days of Confused did while completely standing on its own. Like it it doesn't need Days of Confused to, to, for you to enjoy it entirely on its own. Mm -hmm. What it does do that's the same is like, it finds in a completely fresh ensemble. It's like most people, I, most of the people I didn't recognize from anything prior. Right. You know, these are a lot of like television actors and he finds like a complete, uh, you know, oh, I did recognize Kurt Russell's son. Saw him. Oh, which one was he? He is the um, other. Oh, why Russell, the pothead Willoughby, that yes. guy. Yes. Oh, yes. He was great. I didn't know that was yeah. Kurt Russell's son. Damn. Yeah. He's been in a, he was in um, Cold in July. And, oh, uh, yeah. What, 22 what Jump Street. Yeah. So, but mostly an ensemble of like fresh faced people. Like we, we, we aren't very, we aren't overly accustomed with and who come to the film with their own baggage and own associations. Like this is a whole new group of people that you're getting to know in a movie that feels like there's so much space in it, you know? And it was just like, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about this movie. Like the look of it kind of seemed you know, superficially, like uh, like a sort of WB look to it, and it was just like there there was a, a you know we've when Days and Confused came out in 1993, we weren't even overly we we weren't overexposed to 70s nostalgia yet, mm. um, and 70s nostalgia never reached the sort of like maximalization that 80s nostalgia has. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means necessarily, but like. You know, 1993, we were still four years away from Boogie Nights. We're still, you know, a couple years away from Dick. Anybody remember that one? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kirsten Dunst, Michelle Williams, for sure. Yeah, sure. bless their hearts. <laughs> and so, like, so now we're in, an, we're 23 years after Days of Confused, and we've, like, we've digested so much 80s nostalgia mm. that how can any of it possibly resonate or have any sort of like thrill to it and this movie manages to find it it's at this like crossover between the 1970s and 1980s where it's like in the year 1980 as we're going into the new school year for um a group of baseball players at college so like this is the new terrain days of confused was about high school and going into summer and this is leaving summer and going into college and what he describes as like this if that movie was about um, kind of being confined mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, like rebelling against the expectations that are placed on you. This movie is about complete freedom and yeah. you feel that like there is such a, 
there was such a sense of like, I don't know, like relief that yeah. you're almost getting from the characters. <laughs> and there's just this breezy quality that all of his like best movies have this kind of, this sense of, of discovery that gives it, uh, you know, a, a momentum to it. So it's not just breezy in a boring way. It's mm-hmm. like, it's got a sense of being uh, electrocuted with possibility. And yeah. so it's like people talking a lot, but it's also got this spark to it, the way genuine conversation between people that you're excited by has. And so like the movie starts and it's kind of like dripping with 80s nostalgia. And I was just like, I don't, I mean, I've seen so much of this now that it almost doesn't have an impact. My Sharona, okay, yeah. I mean, <laughs> 20 years ago, that was in Reality Bites. Like we, we, we've seen it, we know it. Oh, now all the players are rapping along with Rapper's Delight. Like, that was in The Wedding Singer. Um, all right. Like, this is, like, what what's new? And what's new, or at least if it's not new, it's, like, incredibly refreshing, is this, like, this ensemble and these, like, these characters all defining themselves through their performance. And, like, all, like, the the writing is 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 great, but... You know, in the Q and A I saw him at, he he would throw stuff away if there wasn't a sense of genuine discovery with it. So whatever the actors brought to the table, that would wind up on the movie. That would wind up in the film, and like there would just be there was. That's why it crackles with the life that it does. Right, right. I I love like so much of what you said, and I had a similar sort of trepidation in the first twenty thirty minutes of this movie where. <laughs> Yeah. And it almost kind of peaked with the, uh, the you mentioned the Rapper's Delight scene, which goes on for, that's a long song, and it goes on. <laughs> that's what becomes impressive, is that yeah. you're like, oh, this is boring, and then it doesn't stop, and you're like, well, all right, you gotta hand it to them that they're willing to go this far with it. Right, it's like, yeah, when by the time I was like, wow, like, yeah, this is still going, it can, it continues for, yeah, like minutes later. And you're like, yeah, you have to almost applaud the fact that he's going to let you sit with that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, essentially this movie, uh, like like all great Richard Linklater movies, you have to sort of settle into the groove, like settle yeah. into its particular, uh, yeah, into its patience its or its, its uh, storytelling style. And you once you kind of do settle in, and also I think the other factor is... Uh, Beyond this is movie is flooded with characters. Every single one is somehow three dimensional. Even if they exist in the movie for five minutes, they are a fully fleshed out person. And that yeah. is another secret. I don't know what secret alchemy Richard Linklater has as a filmmaker to do this, but he's done it before and he's done it again with this movie. The way he described it was like they, he has, he's got like a ranch and like once the cast was sort of like locked in place, they all went out there for, I think like several weeks. And so they were doing baseball rehearsals, baseball practice, sorry, dance rehearsals. (laughs) um, And they were, they were all just like hanging out together. And so like that sense of like, kind of genuinely developed personalities interacting and bouncing off each other. Mm. Like that's what, that that's what's exactly the same with dazed and confused. Mm. It's like, you have all these like well-drawn characters and they're a pleasure to be around. Like every time someone would fall back into a scene, I'd be like, Oh, I missed that guy. You know, <laughs> like there are just all these people like 
even like if you if you didn't want to be around them, like uh, Ben Affleck's character in Days and Confused, there was a fascination you had with them because yeah. you recognize them from real life. Like there's something repulsive about his like bullying tendencies in that movie, and the same with with a lot of the archetypes in uh, Everybody Wants Some. Is mm. just you recognize these people, and there's something genuine and organic about them, and they're like a pleasure to hang out with. And I think that's the that's the key to longevity. That's why a movie like Days and Confused can play in a theater for a year is because people love people loved the characters and they wanted to hang out with them more. There's almost this expectation that like as much as spiritual sequel is hard for most people to digest the way pitching Midnight Special people seems to be. Most people are just expecting it not to work, yeah. I think. Anybody who sort of knows Days and Confused has loved it or has any feelings about it whatsoever they're just like, eh, why would that work? Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. So people people just I don't know. It does it doesn't seem like I don't hear anyone talking about the movie, really. Right, right. That's that's worrisome. That's strange. I mean it's getting yeah, good it's so, getting very good reviews, but yeah, that's kinda it. Absolutely. I think the critics all sort of like they they have an adoration for it because it is so unique at this point. Like mm. Richard Linkletter has always had a unique voice. Um but like this is a demonstration that he like he he's done it again basically yeah he like if you were to make a follow up to Days and Confused that doesn't involve the same characters but has like a similar sort of ensemble and it and it it there's a feel to the movie that's similar mm-hmm. and I think like for him to be able to achieve that this this much further into his career is pretty miraculous. Mm-hmm. You know, especially like he's been busy with different types of movies. You know, Boyhood was a whole just like 12 year endeavor. And it's like it's it's sense of experimentation was like super unique. And like that that had like a gimmick that could hook people. And then he just went on to sort of like rinse the palate with this movie that just feels so unburdened and like refreshing and like it feels like that kind of like first year of college. Mine wasn't as like carefree necessarily but there was a lot more angst involved but maybe that was just the the year you know like, <laughs> this is 1980 what about you 10 bucks 10 bucks best out of the three so i gotta get two yeah mac right. two okay you feel like losing 10 bucks you're just excited to hit off me for once huh oh man i mean it, this is gonna be fun this is gonna be very fun Nevi. come on come on mr axe strong man right. you want to go half price we can stop now. We can call it five bucks. No, 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 nothing. No, triple one, huh? Tri- yeah, you feeling lucky? I am. I, I feel great with those odds. Triple or nothing sounds fantastic. It'll be one of the one of the best days of my life here, Nez. You know, until tomorrow. The characters, the perspective we have in this movie is is carefree because these guys don't they're pretty entitled you know they they're yeah. they're these guys are very privileged but the 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 thing i like about it is that and, and it's it comes from a very honest perspective from linklater i think and also a lived experience because this is very similar to what he went through in college it's about the same time he was in college he played yeah. baseball for a texas university he gets these worlds these are stories from his life um, and I like to think of the the main character in this one is uh, I believe his name is Jake and he's played by Blake Jenner mm-hmm. um, is sort of the he's Mitch Kramer from Days and Confused grown up and he gets yeah. to, and this is him in college and now he's a good pitcher he's kind of a stud on campus I like that I like the way that that all works but 
this movie has a very specific perspective and one I think that might explain perhaps why we're not hearing maybe beyond critics, why maybe people don't want another movie about white guys, you know, white privileged guys. And not all white. It's, well, that's true. And I really like the way that the movie does it's all white. <laughs> there's there, there is one black baseball player and I really loved that actor as well. And yeah. the way it all sort of, that's never discussed in a way. It made me think of last year, uh, tangerine, how like there there's this, um, there's this black character in this movie and, and, and everybody wants him, but it's never like brought up or it's just like, he's a part of the team. He's just one of their buddies, you know, yeah. he goes where they go and they go where he goes. And he goes to a cowboy bar and like, no, no, no one bats an eye. And... Yeah. In 1980s, Texas. Like there's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting that this is how, ha- I'm sorry if I clotheslined you it's in, okay. in the middle of a sentence, but like that, this, this landscape where like we've never not been in, but it seems like the conversation is being pushed to the, the forefront lately of like, you know, uh, with the, the discussion of the Oscars being so white and like now, now thinking about just casting and like about how the, just the dominance of white characters like throughout history at this point. So it's just like, why couldn't there be more prominent black actors in or, you know, black characters in this film. Mm-hmm. And, and is that, is that the burden of writer director Richard Linklater? Cause it's just like, maybe his experience was that like he went to school with primarily white people, which is like, that was my kind of college experience living in Eugene. So it's just like, is that interesting to people if he's like sticking to a story that's like primarily his experience, which is white, you know, like, I don't know, like that's become, that was a gripe a, a friend had about midnight special. He's like, it's a little too white for me. And I was like, that seems like a, a, a pretty like current way to be dismissive of stuff. Yes. But it's just like, you know, it, it seems like a kind of social justice warrior way to uh, have a, have a built in gripe with anything that exists now. Exactly. And not that it, it doesn't have merit, but it's just like, all right, so let's let's continue this conversation. And does like blackness have an identity that is that the responsibility or it because I, I know that the director of Tangerine got shit because he's a straight white male. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he makes a completely naturalistic film of these characters and he sort of allows the actors playing them to sort of drive the engine of the story. And it was like, what could be what could be more honest it wasn't it wasn't like soft handed or anything. It was just like it was a completely honest movie, but he still got shit for it. So it's just like this, this weird limbo that we're in where it's like, all right, so can you take a white director from Texas and ask him to tell a story that's basically not his? And or maybe that's not even that's kind of not what you were saying. You're just saying like people aren't really just interested in it. Well, I think it's all it's a very complex issue that's going on in the movie world and yeah, I mean, you, you've already basically articulated this, but first and foremost, yeah, you and I, obviously, we want to see all different kinds of stories, different act. Yeah. We want to see all people represented. There needs to be more stories. I mean, there's an argument to be made for this film, Everybody Wants Some, that the uh, there's a uh, uh, an actress, um, Zoe, Zoe Deutsch. Uh, she plays Beverly in this movie. She's a mm-hmm. great, great actress. Never seen her before either. She becomes a sort of potential love interest character to the Jake... 
to the Jake character in this. And there's an argument to be made that her perspective, her first weekend of college could be a, like a whole, uh, like could also be a great movie. And, right. and that's there, right? That's valid. And I would love for the next movie that comes out from a studio, uh, a studio release like this, that, uh, that that's the that's the next one we should get, or maybe there's a group of uh, you know uh, black American uh, baseball players, or or whatever, or just characters going to college right. or, or race. What that's so? Do you t- attack the movie for what it's not? Yeah, exactly. You know, or I think do people you, you are. accept it on its terms that it's just like it's about these sort of like cocky athletes on their like first week in college. Um, or at least Jake's first week in college, mm-hmm. um, and or do you do you start punching holes into like what it's not bringing to the table? Right. And so it's just like it's it. I mean, it's kind of like what we're talking about or, about an overabundance of content. It's like this is a way to negate something. This is a way to to yeah. sort of like malign it and and sort of like superimpose this like conversation that is urgent and needs to be had onto everything as a way to shut it down. And yeah. it's just like. Okay. I mean, because you can see it on Facebook all the time where it's like, mm-hmm. here's why this movie is dangerous to like, oh, all right. I mean, I guess I guess so. But like, I think I think you're right that there needs to be a, a complete variety of experience. And it's just like the movies that are good that like do have compelling characters, good writing, a movie like Midnight Special or like Everybody Wants Some. Mm-hmm should because they demonstrate merit then be taken down because they 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 aren't a perfect example of you know where we need to be right. you know or should you know like this conversation needs to be had for every level of movie basically yeah well and also i think it's very important to remember that it's not i, I think the burden is you could place some of it on Richard Linklater, but essentially I don't think it's this movie's fault that it is right. a, a mostly white perspective because for, for several reasons. One, this is Rich, Richard Linklater's experience. I had a very similar college experience as well. I mean, unfortunately, where I lived and went to college in southern Minnesota, there just weren't that many black people around. I would have loved to had a whole diverse, you know, range of people at that school. It just really wasn't the reality of where I went. And when I played baseball for a couple years in college, um, essentially this, this movie is like a huge window. You know, I don't know if you knew or cared, Joe, but you learned a lot more about my previous life experience from this movie. So, uh, it's to me, this is an extremely relatable movie. There were points where I, you know, just sort of whispered to my girlfriend in, in the movie where I was like, you're learning so much about me by watching this movie. Like, so, so in that end, this movie is extremely relatable to me. And the idea of relatability is another issue. I think that people get stuck on with movies Yeah. where, why does every character have to be relatable? You know, it doesn't, you can, they just have to be watchable. You just have to be interested in them. There has to be something compelling about them. Yeah, exactly. And I think that gets lost when we're just like trying to talk about representation, which is another important but complex issue but in the end i don't fault richard linklater because he stayed true to the movie from his perspective his personal experience now the the onus is on the other people making the movies to give other opportunities to other people with different perspectives so we can have a different kind of movie but having said all that richard linklater made 
I'm going to use big words. This is, to me, one of the great baseball movies. Just flat out. One of the great baseball movies that there are out there. And also, he's done a, he's made a great college movie as well. And I think this movie will age well, but it's also going to exist in this sort of, like, it's going to be a marker for this time where... Um, like right after the Oscar so white thing from from this year's Oscars that here's another movie that sort of oh it's it's that all white experience mostly or mostly white experience that people can dismiss offhand like you said yeah. and we understand why in some cases but let's not fault this movie because it is a great it's it's a it's a great movie and yeah. it also it's and it does this amazing thing where when you settle into the groove if you're able to like I was and it sounds like you were as well it's so enjoyable that a plotless two-hour movie can just fly by and I didn't want it to end. I knew the end was coming. He finds a perfect note to end it on. And in that classic Linklater way, he sort of unsubtly, he like nails the point home by uh, there's this professor that writes a comment on the chalkboard in the last scene of the movie. And it's like, there you go. It's like the final scene of Boyhood, the dialogue that is exchanged. It sort of is a, like so on the nose that you might scoff at it, but Linklater isn't necessarily always a subtle writer. He just knows how to hit the perfect note. And yeah. if you can go for it, it just, it's so, I mean, the guy is an extremely gifted filmmaker. And I think besides this movie looking at sort of a, it'll be a marker when we look back at of like, yeah, there were still movies being made that sort of only focused on a mostly white experience like this. Like hopefully that changes, but I, I still think we're going to look back and say, this is one of those great college movies from this era or, or maybe of all time. I mean, time will tell, but yeah. I mean, I think we have to remember by and large as a movie going public, that the movie has to, you have to judge the movie for, for you. You said this already. What is, what is, what is this movie doing? And are you complaining about what it isn't? And it's not always fair to say that, oh, it's deficient in this and that, when it's not really trying to do that. Linklater is specifically giving this perspective, and it's hard to deny that he didn't pretty much, you know, hit the ball out of the park, to use a baseball uh, yeah. reference. I love that you think it's one of the best baseball movies of all time, and it has one baseball scene. It has one baseball scene, but you know what? But it's fantastic. It's, and it's, like... it's essentially watching these actors have a, a scrimmage. They're just playing, and, we're, and he filmed yeah. it. Yeah. There's no build up to like a big game. Nope. There's just like it's them practicing essentially <laughs> and it's one of the most realistic depictions of a practice oh, and like yeah. yeah, it's just like it's it it's such a like pleasure to be with these characters and such a such a sense of like place and time that feels like because it's it's so rare nowadays. Mm it feels like uh, like revelatory to like have this kind of sense of spaciousness in a movie and like, you know, it, 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 I miss an era of um, where, where like that was possible. And like, that was something that people regularly checked in for, right? Like, you know, at the, at the movies and he's a big enough name now that like, Paramount would bankroll a movie like this, but like, Oh, we should also say that, uh, Megan Ellison actually, I yeah. think, yeah. Annapurna, they Annapurna. like, yeah, they, they made the movie happen essentially. She, yeah. That actually the screening I saw it at that he did a Q and a at like her name got applause, which was nice. 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 <laughs> it's kind of an inside baseball thing. Um, 
I guess I just want to put a period at the end of uh, a point I was making about how this movie is extremely relatable for me and mm-hmm. how when, uh, as a moviegoer, when you can have that experience where like, this movie is speaking to me on such a personal level that it's like I'm seeing a my past reflected like this movie set in the early eighties. I went to college in the two thousands and yet nothing had changed in those two decades. Like I know guys like this. I, I went to college with guys like this. I played baseball with guys like this. And there's a uh, part of my trepidation. I think in the beginning with this movie beyond like certain scenes, like going on longer than I thought they sh- would or whatever is that I recognized the truth being put out there that, and it, it made me a bit uneasy because um, I played sports growing up. I could have been labeled as a jock, you know, very uh, easily dismissed by people in high school and college as like, oh, he plays baseball and hockey. That guy's a jock. But what I love about this movie is that you put all the other dismissive shit aside or that it's all about white guys. This is such an optimistic human, like again, for Richard Linklater, like a humanistic film because mm-hmm. He shows maybe what could be considered a sort of utopic vision of college. But I love that here's these jock characters. But a big theme in this movie is about being able to being able to adapt to any situation. So these guys party with the disco crowd, the country crowd, the punk crowd, and the like artsy theater kids throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of get along in a way where it's like, just be... I loved that idea of it. Like these these guys are... These guys were the villains in Revenge of the Nerds. The heroes of this movie were the bad guys forever in college movies and high school movies. And some of them are the bad guys in Days and Confused. But in yep. this movie, they're introduced in sort of their worst. Uh, some of them come off as jerks in the beginning of the movie. But by the end, you've somehow miraculously come to empathize and understand each one in their own way that I liked all of them for even all their flaws, even though I recognized the sort of um, exhaustingly competitive uh, uh, vibe that exists. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the sort of thing I had to let go of when I was done playing sports in college. It was like a weight off my shoulders to not feel surrounded by a group of highly competitive guys like this, but it's so true to that. It's so it is that way. And if you can get past how like sort of exhausting that is. It's, it's also beyond it being an accurate representation. It's, it's a lot of fun and man, I, I had a, I I enjoyed it, but also I felt like hopeful for the world that like we can have a movie that turns the common villain of these type of movies into just people. They're just people that like exist. And it, it uh, basically in the end, it makes me think like, labels like in reductive labels like that's another thing we use nowadays because we're inundated with so much stuff that we use we to dismiss a way to like thin the herd basically exactly it gets back to what you're talking about it's easy to dismiss something if you're like oh i can't relate to it but if you can give in to another window of another person's perspective like you might understand that like it's not it's not fair and it's sort of a, um it's 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 like sadden it's sad it saddens me that we can be so reductive to dismiss like ah oh, it's a movie about a bunch of jocks and bros well yeah cuz it reduces empathy yeah cuz if, if you're not able to identify with something outside of your particular experience so if we're look it the look for representation of uh, of like all different types is a completely like crucial and noble pursuit, but it becomes like that sort of political correctness thing where it ends up strangling its original intent 
Because if you if if people aren't sort of like actually genuinely giving representation, because we're we're so we're scrambling to create representation, and it ends up with inauthentic kind of archetypes presented, mm-hmm. then we're we're not going to have like a, a genuine connection and therefore empathy. And if we're not willing to sort of look outside of ourselves, we're we're not going to develop a sense of like connectedness with people who are unlike us, like on paper, you know? Exactly, man. I mean, in the end, like the whole relatability discussion is, um, even though I've, you know, I've said this movie was extremely relatable to me and thus I loved it. Obviously I must've loved it that much more because of that. But in the end, it doesn't really matter to me when I go to the movies because, and I think this movie really opened up my mind in in a lot and talking about it with my girlfriend after because she sort of, you know, made these points that it's like, this movie's really good, but it's another movie about entitled middle class white guys. And I was like, okay, but let's not blame the movie for that. But I get why that's a concern for right. the for the average moviegoer who Absolutely. only maybe sees less than a dozen movies a year, right, at the theater. And they're seeing movies strictly probably put out by a studio. So it seems like everything's the same. But it helped me understand why that maybe that's not an issue for me and some other people is like, I see movies from all over the world and you do too. And I love getting other experiences and empathy and a window into another culture. I mean, embrace of the serpent, which we talked about in a few episodes back is not at all my experience at all. I loved it even more because of that, but, but now you're just mansplaining. (laughs) And if we could just transition real quickly, because I think this is like a good springboard into uh, our our next hold up. I got involved with the film because I really was a fan of Machu Kassavitz and I uh, had seen another movie of his, Matisse. You know, I was so enamored with him. I thought he was so talented. I said, find out what this guy's doing and and uh, let's see if we can get him in to do something. And we started talking about something. He said, well, I just have to tell you, you know, I, I just finished a movie and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be shown at Cannes and you might want to see that movie before you consider me. Uh, so I got to see Diane and I was just completely blown away. Um, uh, you know, not only had uh, Mathieu moved on to an anticipated level of expertise as a, as a director, but there is a real soul to that film uh, that's about France, how it is now. Uh, something that Americans certainly don't know, but a lot of French people didn't know either. Let me just explain real quick what Hold Up is. Yeah, uh, we, we might have new listeners now. Let's let's it's, explain. It's a segment where we take a movie that has um, has made an impact on us personally, and it started originally as like movies that kind of uh, have have like either a critical backlash or didn't do well in their initial kind of uh, run, and so they're for have like a problematic history and we don't really understand our own uh our own fixation with the movie so we like present them as you know to our critical counterpart to see like how they feel about it and have a discussion of why they made such an impact and why we hold them so dear it's become less so about movies that were kind of maligned initially and more so about just like a movie's kind of enduring legacy and how they do hold up and so um my pick was from kind of that that era that we're talking about, that sort of like 90s indie art house, like heyday. Um, and it's Mathieu Kasovitz La Haine, which when I rented it, 
at the time was just called hate. Um, <laughs> Did it say that on the box too? Yeah. Oh wow. On the box. I'm like, <laughs> I'm sold. And he's pointing a gun right at me. I'm in. Um, and it had a, had a co-sign by Jody Foster, who I think had seen it at a festival and kind of helped usher it into a distribution deal in America. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a French film and I, it, its initial run came out in 1995. Like by the time I saw it, I think it was 97. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a movie I picked because like it was a huge deal to me when I saw it. And um, his preceding movies, um, or the movies that he made afterwards, like never seemed to make the same impact. Mm-hmm. Like there's such a, a vision at work with La Aime that never seemed to be never seemed to catch on afterwards with movies like Crimson Rivers, which he also used Vincent Cassell for and Jean Reno. And, uh, and then with Gothica, which, um, I remember like deeply, deeply hating when I saw it. Um, and I don't think I've checked in after that, but, um, yeah, I haven't seen Babylon AD, but that was really poorly reviewed when it came out. And then he did make a, he made a French action movie that I saw at a festival actually uh, years ago called Rebellion, but I kind of forgot all about it as soon as it was sort of, um, depressingly mediocre was one of those things. Yeah. Yeah, because like with Laine and like there, there are other filmmakers that you can kind of lump in with this where there's like such a refreshing vision that their first movie kind of kicks down the door with. Mm-hmm. And then after that, there's just something kind of uh, that just doesn't doesn't add up and doesn't, you know, like there's just there's there's something amiss. And uh, in rewatching Laine, it was just like it made me start to think about the the era that it came out of and how because there were so many things in the cultural conversation mm. you know this is a french film so it's a global conversation but like in the language of film there were so many things that were happening at that time you know there were like even though this was probably being made in tandem with uh with kids which came out in 1995 mm-hmm. like there's elements of that film at work there's there's elements of like Scorsese's influences over a lot of the independent films in the 1990s. There's so much Scorsese at work. There's Spike Lee elements in it, and there's like that that whole kind of like beautiful uh, groundswell of like African American filmmakers from the late 80s into the early 90s, where it was just like I think about that time, that like how the studios didn't know how to control the interest how like hip-hop had just come out not just come out grow up it you know (laughs) but like it had reached a sort of like height of popularity around like 1986 where it was just like we don't know how to control this it's clearly popular despite our lack of representation like in mtv so it just like it took on a life of its own and so when spike lee made she's got to have it uh, you know, a huge independent film. Universal was just like, all right, make what you want. Sure, there's more uh, more nuanced story to the history of this. But that, as a film, like, watcher, that's kind of what it seemed like. Like, he made an impact. They didn't know how to control, you know, like, the interest. So it's just like, all right, clearly there's an audience for this. So make what you want. And so, like, movies that sort of, like, 
bloomed out of that. Like they had an independent feel, even though they had studio money. Maybe right. it wasn't a lot of money, mm. but it certainly was seen on the screen. Like Do the Right Thing feels like a huge movie. Oh, and it yeah. came out in the summer and Universal was behind it. It's unbelievable, man. Yeah, it's incredible. And I know that we've sang the praises of that movie a lot, but like another movie that Laine sort of seems to... It, it's what well, I didn't realize when watching it originally, like there's a lot of juice. Yeah. In, yeah. Yeah. Which was like a, it, Ernest Dickerson. It's his feature debut. Spike Lee cinematographer. He made this movie about um, a group of kids growing, growing up in Harlem who decide to plan a robbery. And this introduction of a gun into the group basically just poisons the well of their friendship and uh, takes over. It takes on a life of its own, yeah. and it's like it's a, such a kinetic movie, and so like it just crackles with life, and it's just like that was, you know, that did really well at the box office. It was just this era where like there was different types of films happening, mm-hmm. and so those films were all informing each other. And with a movie like La Ain that seems to synergize all of these elements and make something completely unique. You know, like, doesn't feel derivative. It doesn't right. feel like, oh, here's, of course, here's the, even though a scene is directly referencing lines from Taxi Driver early on when we're introduced to Vince, Vincent Cassell's character. Yeah. Um, but there's like this weird twist to it where it's funny because he's kind of a goofball in the scene, you know, yeah. he's like really hamming it up. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's, there's something, there's some tone that this movie magically strikes which is kind of what makes it sad that he, like, Matthew Kasovitz didn't come up with something sort of equally visionary. Mm. But it's the it takes place in a sort of ravaged part of Paris where um, riots have been tearing apart this lower income area. Mm-hmm. And as much as this movie is about race at times, it's also about poverty and how the persecution of poverty. And so it's just all these it's this multicultural group of friends but they're all sort of similarly unified under the heat of police that are just like persecuting an area where poor people live. Yeah. And so it's this group of friends after one of their peers has been beaten into a coma by the cops and they're sort of wandering through the course of 24 hours where a gun has gone missing from a cop and it's it's about this group of friends finding it as things steadily escalate towards like an inevitable sort of climax with police tension. And like the movie feels, you know, incredibly relevant now. Oh my God, dude, watching it. Did you even like the line about Donald Trump that someone says, did, did you catch that this, this time? (laughs) No, I didn't see it. There's, there's a scene. um, I think it's in the uh, bathroom. It's, it's the, about halfway through the movie, the, these characters go to Paris. So it's like, it's a movie of two halves in terms of like uh, it's setting, you know, it starts in their, their borough and then, then they're in Paris. And I think it's the scene where they're in a bathroom and some, one of the characters goes on a sort of rant and the uh, one of the other characters like quickly says like what are you Donald Trump or something like that like mm. talk about prescient for right now that's the other thing about this movie you're you're doing a great job of contextualizing the era that it came out in and how we were rife with movies that were highly referential like that and yet this one does synergize into its own style despite all the references but more than anything this movie might be more relevant now in our political climate in the states than. Yeah. 
And and in Paris, where there's all this, you know, there's been these awful shootings and things like happened. Like racial divides might be even, um, you know, scarily stronger even, or yeah. or it might be even worse of a problem in France now. And that makes this movie like more vital. And for a movie to to be like so socially and politically like strong and and relevant decades on like that is impressive. But more than anything, I think, um, because I think this hold up episode is hopefully going to turn some people onto this movie to see it if they've never even heard of it or seen it, is that this movie is so blazingly entertaining, man. Yeah. Like for all of its social points and things it wants to deal with, you know, issues, yeah. it does. It never gets didactic about it. Yeah. It's a great movie. It's so cinematic. It is just rife, <laughs> rife with these sequences and moments. Yeah. Kind of similar to the the whole like charm of the ensemble with everybody wants some. There's just all these people and they're such like rich characters. And it does what I think Do the Right Thing does, what Spike Lee does with a lot of his movies, what Martin Scorsese beautifully does with like Mean Streets and Goodfellas, is they he finds the musicality of bickering and shit talking, yes. which so much of this movie is, is people overlapping and like it's in French, so it's just like, I mean there's a whole different kind of musicality to the, the language that's not mine and all these people kind of like getting impassioned and like talking shit to each other. And yeah, there's like, there's a boldness to this movie oh, that's, um, yeah, that's also really refreshing. That seems influenced by, you know, the, it seems just as much influenced by uh, hip hop music as it does like with cinema. And oh, so yeah. it's just these beautiful um, like, sequences were like at this in 1995 i don't know how they got what looks like a drone shot through Dude. The projects yes set to a dj mixing live outside of his project window like, it was just like how did they, what the fuck did they fly a kite with a camera on it i don't because <laughs> it's not a helicopter shot because it's too low you know what i thought of though uh i thought of the film angst uh the austrian film that we talked about last year yeah where they had those insane crane shots like yeah i think they might have had a crane or something like that but i wondered the same thing and for a movie to get you know uh, in, intense movie lovers like you and I to be like, how'd they do that? You know, yeah. like, and to not really know, we could speculate. That's that's movie magic. For this movie to tackle something so urgent in its era, and you know, tragically still as prescient and as urgent with a with a boldness, and never feeling really didactic. Mm. You know, the movie's got a strange surrealistic quality to it. There's like these, the section that you were describing about, you know, where they reference Donald Trump in the bathroom. There are these weird kind of like breaking moments where like all of a sudden someone will kind of wander out and like talk kind of like out of turn with the characters. Right. And they'll be like, who the fuck was that guy? And like, <laughs> the old man in the bathroom. Who's yeah. Like, the old man in the like bathroom or the shit. guy that approaches them when they're trying to steal a car. Yeah. Yeah. And like the cow wandering through. And there's just these weird kind of senses of like oddball humor that like another thing that was kind of influencing the indie scene at the time was a filmmaker like Jim Jarmusch, which like the, the black and white photography of the film which this movie, it's gorgeous. Oh it's my gorgeous God. black and white photography. Mm-hmm. And the sort of the, the way he frames shots that art broke it up, where it's just like the three of them sitting all in a row, you know, against, you know, there's a dinosaur playground, you know, uh, just like 
you know, there's this like setting of like a dinosaur in the background and it's like a beautifully staged picture. Right. And like that feels like, a you know, Jarmushi and the sense of humor sometimes does as well. And so it's just like all of these elements converging and all these sort of like different tones to communicate something so urgent that like 20 years later is just as urgent tragically. Seriously, politically, socially it is right. And it's still relevant like that. But even another sense of relevancy is something I've I got into in our previous episode when you announced this as your holdup is that the, the ripple effect in, in, the crime genre, especially mm-hmm. in, in like world cinema is like from this film is it's just, it still continues. And, uh, I, w- I, I lumped it this film with, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's first movie, uh, pusher. Mm-hmm. And, and they're both like these new takes on the co- crime genre. I mean, Lahane, it might not even be fair to, to, it might be too reductive, you know, to call it a crime movie, but yeah, I, yeah. You know, I, I thought it, it feels like a day in the life movie, right? Or... Right. It's it's actually quite similar to to Days and Confused in that sense. The sort of twenty four hour plotless yeah. scenario, like, and and Juice, like you said as well. It's a great comparison. But I still think those elements are there, and the ripple effects still happen for more outright crime movies, like something like A Prophet or Gamora, the the pusher sequels that came. Yeah. Um. All these movies that that have come since is the 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 merging of the social the socio-political um elements the the worries we have as like you know as, as people like a lower class of people being treated poorly it, it, all these things like that that arises that's that's more important now in these crime movies and also it's not about a grand um godfather-esque you know right highly yeah it's not about that anymore and i even think the the more modern crime movies that have done the sort of more godfather or even goodfellas like grand story of like i think of like something like ridley scott's american gangster or yeah hell even vincent cassell's um he did a two-part uh messerine yeah it was about he played a real life french criminal Man, I love the idea of those movies on paper, but in practice, they they were sort of boringly, uh, I thought, dated. Like even when they came out, it's like, ah, this is like old fashioned in a way that I don't think works for me. Right? Yeah, because they they're not yeah they're not pulsing with the life that a movie like Lahaine and the other films in its wake have. I think. Well, I think that because they're trying to like cover too much terrain, they're trying to like get too much of the story. They end up painting with these broad strokes that like a movie like La Aine that's concentrated within 24 hours, it's got all this grit, urgency and energy to it that like isn't broken up. Like it's, it's completely lived in and it's not like watching a character 10 years later and you're kind of distracted by how bad the makeup is on their beard. And you're just (laughs) like, you know, it it just takes these broad strokes that kind of remove you from the immersion of the movie and like a movie, like a prophet. Yeah. I feel like there, as much as I still think that movie is incredible, the first 45 minutes of that movie is like needs to be its own standalone film because it clips with that urgency, with that grit, and it's just got like it's this sense of immersion that's not broken up by too much time passing mm-hmm. that you get to see the character like really live moment to moment. And like that's what's so beautiful about this film right. is that you're seeing these characters in the struggle living moment to moment. And like even the cops, as removed as you are from them and as monstrous as they seem, you know, not necessarily as like caricature-ish as they are in a film like straight out of Compton, but like mm. 
you you're seeing them as like people moment to moment and like they're 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 people working class people pitted against each other mm. you know and like and and real life tragedy sort of like erupts from that oh man the ending of this movie shocks me every time man oh it's it's incredible yeah i've, I've seen this film, i think watching it the other day was like third or fourth time uh, i've watched it and it just sneaks up on me every time and it's it it's as close to a perfect ending as i can yeah. think of for a for a movie like you know for this kind of movie yeah do you remember that this was uh we when we were sort of flirting with the idea of uh having an adjuster tracking presents like screening series this was like the first one that we sort of narrowed in on we collectively thought of i do remember that yeah you know and it yeah. makes me think that it'd be fun some some way to to create a maybe it's a segment or a, something we do where we create like our kind of ayt canon you know the canon of great films uh, yeah. i i had referenced how fight club and taxi driver i think you and i were just talking about that because i made a new intro music for the podcast and i incorporated dialogue from both those movies because mm-hmm. those are like those were important movies to us specifically and uh yeah i think it'd be fun to do that because i mean lahane belongs in there i mean i'm i don't mind using hyperbole like this this is one of the great movies of the nineties. I mean, this is one of the great yeah. movies for me of all time. It's, it's going to find my way in my personal top movies because it will it like a good hangout movie, like a good movie that condenses its, its time period into a day, like, like something like days and confused. It, it has this unbelievable rewatchability to it because it's not, it's not plotless, but there's not a narrative concern to it. So it's a, like, it has the vibe of a hangout movie, but yet all these other stylistic, exciting cinematic things. And I can go back to it. I can, I want to revisit it to be surprised by it again and again, but also to be like, Oh, here's where he uses that shot that like Hitchcock used in vertigo and Spielberg used in jaws where you, you pull the camera back, but you zoom in at the same time, you know, yeah. the sh- poltergeist, the, the hallway. Like, oh trick. yeah. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. And it's so gorgeous because of the, he's using these reference and these stylistic things that we've seen before and things that he does, you know, sort of his, in his own style, but yet they feel fresh, but they're also commenting on the film. That's the best use of camera movements and style, all the cinematic possibilities for even a low budget movie like this at hand for a filmmaker. And he, he like takes advantage at every scene. It's like that maybe, maybe there's something to be said for, um, Kasovitz's directorial career after this is that maybe he just like spent all of his good ideas on this film. You know, it's got that urgency. It's not technically his first feature. He made one a couple years before, right. but it but feels it's the one that broke him basically to like a whole audience. And maybe it broke him creatively. Maybe we're getting at that. Like he's also probably been hindered by, you know, we can speculate all we want, but maybe the studio system hindered him and all that. But uh, it, it's hard to say, but maybe this is just that maybe he just had this one like all timer great movie in him. And I'd say 90% of filmmakers in their life would give anything for one of those movies yeah. and they'll never reach that. So even though we can sort of lament that, like what happened to this guy? Um, I can still be glad I see him pop up as an actor in something like Munich, you know, the Steven Spielberg yeah. film. Or, or Haywire. Oh yeah, that's right. He was in Haywire. Exactly. Or Amelie. He's great in Amelie. Uh, love him in Amelie. Exactly. And you know, he shows up as a, uh, as a neo-Nazi, he looks like a character straight out of uh, Green Room, the film we're going to discuss in our next episode. He, he, Matthew 
Matthew Kasovitz shows up as a sort of skinhead character in the in a, one of the Paris scenes in this movie, and he's a great actor. He's got a great presence. Um, mm. But um, yeah, we can speculate and wonder what happened. But man, we have this movie. This guy made this film, and it's always going to make him sort of important to us on this podcast. And I think if if other people discover it. Uh, and give it a chance. I think it, it could become important to them as well. It's it's just that good. Yeah, it it came out of that sort of beautiful era of of indie vitality and art house movies. But um, and as much as that feels far away, it still exists. And uh, you know, you can catch this movie on Hulu because it has a Criterion. Yeah, Hulu Plus. Yep, yep. So you can watch it on Hulu Plus. I have the Criterion DVD. I could look it up but I, i'm not sure if they've released a blu-ray copy of it but as soon as they do i'm probably just going to upgrade to that but there you go it's also on hulu plus as well so i mean the criterion thing has some great stuff on it too a lot of great features um is that that talk show that uh where Kasovitz is wearing like a pot leaf hat on i it? believe so yeah yeah it does yes it's it does. kind of bratty in it <laughs> he just was like it has the spirit of it this is like a young punks kind of movie but like yeah. way more intelligent and he could have never known how how prescient this movie would be 20 years later right. but that's that's the beauty of making something it's like lightning in a bottle you know and he he really had it so um i i think it is safe to say this one is beyond it holds up it it holds yeah. up very well So yeah, with that, uh, why don't we wrap up uh, number episode number 127 of Adjust Your Tracking. Uh, and as I referenced uh, just a few minutes prior to this, uh, we will be coming again shortly, I think in about a week's time with our, our big green room discussion. Uh, also, uh, you can, uh, since we are now on the playlist podcast uh, feed on iTunes and we're we're releasing these episodes first via the, the playlist. Um, I should also say that uh, if it's not out yet, it's going to be coming soon. My 30-minute interview with Jeremy Saulnier, director of Green Room, will be released on the playlist podcast. So look for that and then uh, obviously look for more uh, episodes of Adjuster Tracking coming soon, like, like uh, the episode of Green Room that we have coming. So very exciting stuff. You can find our episodes on the playlist, which is part of the IndieWire, IndieWire blog network. Uh, we're also on SoundCloud on the playlist uh, SoundCloud page. Uh, what about contacting us, Joe? Where can people find us? Well, you can email us, uh, adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. You had to or, think about uh, it. You had to think about it. I did, because that's usually <laughs> not mine. I'm, 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 not, I'm, not, I'm not usually fucking with the email. I usually <laughs> just chime in with my pre-recorded Twitter at adjustyourtrack. So I'm trying to I'm trying to that. share it, you know. I'm trying to share the uh, share the burden with you. Catch us on LinkedIn, <laughs> um, Facebook. We are we are actually on Facebook, LinkedIn. Yeah, for just, real. Just having a good time, LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, it, you can find us on all those channels. Um, we we of course need to thank our super producer Drew Walner for all the work he does behind the scenes. He is. He is going to be busy with a big project, archiving all our, as I said, this is episode 127 of Adjuster Tracking. We've got a lot of old podcasts, and they are available still for, for the, um, the inquisitive, uh, inquiring listener who might want to dig back and find those. But he's going to be archiving them and finding a good home for them moving forward now that we've, 
switch to the playlist. So, um, you know, Drew, we appreciate all the work you do behind the scenes and for, you know, just keeping us up and running as a on the tech side of things. Couldn't do it without you. But, um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't. First and foremost, I couldn't do this without you, Joe Von Oppen. So thanks for talking with me, man. Thanks, Eric. Moi j'en ai plein de cul super ce putain de système, tous les jours comme un connard